Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's a great delight to have James Clear on the podcast. Clear's website, jamesclear.com, receives millions of visitors each month and hundreds of thousands subscribe to his email newsletter. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Time, and Entrepreneur, and on CBS This Morning, and is taught in colleges around the world. Clear is the creator of the Habits Academy, the premier training platform for organizations and individuals that are interested in building better habits in life and work. His latest book is called Atomic Habits an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. James, such a delight to chat with you today. Hey, thanks so much for having me, man. It's good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. I mean, this book that you did is right now, at this point in your life, your magnum opus. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's the most complete and comprehensive guide that I've put together on how habits work and really how to change them or how to shape them. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, as a scientist, you'll appreciate this philosophy too, but I think a lot of authors they write a book and then because you put so much effort and energy and research into a book, you know, for me, this was a three-year process to finish the book itself and then probably six years of writing before that. I think a lot of the time once the book is published, you kind of double down on all the ideas because it, it took so much effort to put it in there. But in a sense, I'm trying to just view this as like the world's most polished first draft on habits, you know? Yes. And so I put it out there and I'm hoping that I'll get a lot of feedback on, you know, what people enjoy and find useful and what questions they have or where there are gaps in my thinking. And then, you know, hopefully I can send out a revised and updated version five years from now or 10 years from now or whatever and really fix any of the flaws that are there. So I'm I like I'm very excited to share with people. I'm really proud of what it is, but I'm also excited to continue to improve it. Well, you clearly walk the talk because that's one of the main themes of your book is to continually improve even, you know, one percent, you know, every day. Mm. I'd be happy if I improved one percent every month. <laughs> you know, I'd be <laughs> well, happy it would add that. up by a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I'm always impressed with those who can do that every day, you know. Yeah, so I really like that attitude. And you said the first draft for the world, like the world's first draft. But personally, you obviously went, I assume you went through more than one draft. What was your first draft like of this book? Your personal? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> Do you yeah, not even I want to talk through. about it? <laughs> well, this is maybe a little bit of an insight into my process, but I totally overwrote for the book. So I, mm-hmm. I ended up having to ask my publisher for an extra year to research and write it. Uh, once I got about a year in, I realized, oh, this isn't going to be enough time. And they very graciously gave it to me. But my first full draft of the book was 214,000 words, which is over 700 pages. And the finished version is about 250 pages of text. Mm -hmm. So it's about one third of what it was when I first put it all together. And I'm glad that that happened. I mean, it needed to be refined and honed down. But my hope is that I was able to like still capture the essence of all of those 700 pages, but in a more digestible, easy to understand, simple and actionable format. Yeah, I mean, it's such a common thing for that first draft to be bloated, as they say, because mm-hmm. you rarely know exactly, until hindsight, you know exactly what are the most relevant things until you see the big picture. At least that is the case for me. You know, Oh, I, that was definitely yeah. the case. Yeah. I didn't really know what the book was until I had written the whole thing. Oh, that's interesting. Thing, oh, what was sounds, your book proposal? Well, it was always going to be a book about habits, sure, right? It was, always, sure. it was always going to be that. I've been writing about habits at jamesclear.com for what, six years now. Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of ideas about habits, a lot of individual strategies for changing them or specific tactics that you could use in a given situation. And there were maybe say 30 or 40 of those ideas that were all kind of under the umbrella of building better habits. But I didn't understand how they all fit together. I didn't understand like what the framework was that how they integrated. And um, I needed to pretty much write the whole book to get my thoughts in order and figure out like how do these work together. You know, on a blog, articles can be kind of like a spider web. You can have like one article that connects to three or four other ideas. But in a book, it needs to be more of like a number line, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, like it needs to, to build. And so I had to write the whole thing to figure out where do all the pieces fit. I love that. I love that because, you know, in Wired to Create, I talk about how creativity is, is an emergent property. And, you know, like, you know, Picasso said he hardly ever knew where he was going until he got there, you know, (laughs) and uh, it sounds like your process is similar, but it doesn't mean that you have to operate blind. That's a false dichotomy as well, right? It doesn't mean just because it's emerging that you're just like stabbing in the dark at trial and error. You're still building these habits that are going to ultimately increase the likelihood that something good's going to emerge. You know, I would be interested to get your thoughts on this, but I I think for me, similar to that Picasso quote you just shared. Mm -hmm. Writing is like thinking. A lot of the time, I don't really know what I think about something until I have written about it because I get to kind of iterate on the thought uh, multiple times as I go through it. And I find that if I'm asked about something that I haven't written about, what I'm really doing in the moment is I'm just talking my emotions. I'm talking my feelings. Like you asked me a question, I haven't written about it before. So my response is just kind of based on like whatever my gut intuition Mm -hmm. is or feeling is in the moment. And I'm talking those feelings out loud in my response. But when I write, I get to do that. I get to talk through my feelings and I I read what I write out loud. Sounds like good therapy. Yeah, but I get to revise it again and again. And so I eventually where I get to after I've revised an article 25 times is very different than what that first draft would be when it comes out of my mouth in conversation. I don't know. It's kind of an interesting thing. It's like you ask me about something and I tell you what I think, but it might not actually be what I think. It's just kind of my first initial response. Yeah, I've, also, I've often thought of the writing process as a beautiful thing for me personally because it allows you to kind of cull and, and reject 
all of the things that if they were put in public would hurt your reputation <laughs> as a writer. And I wish like the dating process, the marriage process, the job selection process, I wish so much of life was like that. You know, it's like, because I think like if some people read like some of those early drafts, they would not think I'm as good of a writer as they think right now. You know, right, but who's yeah. the real me? I mean, is the real me, you know, the finished, polished, you know, wow, he's such a good writer, you know, or is the real, mm. the real me, am I faking everyone? <laughs> you know, like the real mm. me was like that first draft. I like this idea that like the mind is a suggestion engine. And so my mind is suggesting a lot of alternatives for the answer to any given question. And writing allows me to kind of like put all of those alternatives on one page and then gradually cull the ones that don't make sense and cut those out and refine the ones that do make more sense. And yeah, when you only get one chance at the first date or one chance at the job interview, you kind of give whatever your first response is, but it may not be your, uh, the best suggestion that your mind could come up with. That's right. So you were on this podcast before. You're one of our rare return uh, offenders. Oh, thank you so much. I'm very honored to, uh, to have earned the right to come back. Your work is excellent, and I'm wondering how you personally have felt like you've learned or grown since I chatted with you February 14th, 2000, I had to look it up, February 14th, 2016, we mm. chatted. Where were you at that place, and you know, how do you think you personally have grown? Well, so you caught me right after I had signed the book deal at that point. So I signed it cool. in late 2015, so it had been a few months. So I was in the process of writing the book, but I really had no idea what I was biting off and what was to come. But as far as how I've changed, I think my thoughts on habits have become much more refined. And we can talk about that as we go through the conversation. But in a more broad sense, recently I've come to realize or uh, have started to appreciate more the, I guess I'll say like the balance between things. So this idea that two opposing answers can often both be correct, but it just depends on the circumstances or Two opposing strategies can often both be effective, but it depends on when you need them. So take just as like a very simple example, you could live your life in like a low level state of movement, walking to and from work, sleeping, whatever. Or you could do like a more extreme strategy where you're living on both ends of the spectrum. Like you sprint for 30 minutes a day and you do like this intense sprint workout and then you like really rest and recover for like 10 hours and you sleep, you know, a lot that night. And often that like oscillating strategy can actually lead to better outcomes or better results. Like it could lead to more muscle growth and strength in this sprinting and sleeping case than just performing at like a mid range level of movement throughout the whole day. And I wonder if that's also true of a lot of ideas, if that's true from like a mindset standpoint, that many seemingly opposing extremes or opposing theories, there's truth in all of them. And it just, the answer is not to always sprint or to always sleep. The answer is to like, what strategy or what extreme do you need at this particular time? And so I'm coming to appreciate that a little bit more. One of the areas where I've thought about this related to habits and related to ideas is, you know, there's this never ending nature versus nurture debate. And like you have on one end, the deliberate practice believers who say like, we can fashion ourselves into almost anything. And then on the other end, you have geneticists and scientists who say like, you know, the genetic code is we're definitely not a blank slate. We're, you know, very limited. And uh, I think both of those are simultaneously true, which sounds like crazy when you first think about it. But it is both true that we can fashion ourselves and mold ourselves into much more than people would expect that maybe your ceiling in any given area is higher than you would believe. And it's also true that our genes nudge us in ways and shape us in ways, set a boundary for us in certain areas 
that we often underappreciate. And so, I don't know, I've kind of been wrestling with these ideas of like opposing answers or simultaneously true opposites. I really love that. You said a lot of really interesting things there. You know, our last, our very latest podcast episode is with Robert Pullman. Who mm, you I interviewed mentioned. him for the book, actually. Yeah, I know. I was going to say, you mentioned him in your book and one of your last chapters. So that was cool to see that. Yeah. And we try to kind of wrestle with some of those issues of that tight interplay between nature and nurture. And he, he's a strong believer that the genes make us create our environments. Like we create, they nudge us to create our environments, you know? And, mm. and it seems like a big theme of your book is choosing the environment that'll help you excel. Like why make things hard for yourself? Like Pullman talks about not going against the grain of mm. your nature. Yeah. I mean, so this is something I talk about a little later in the book and I haven't really seen, I'm sure Robert has a variety of ideas on this, but I haven't really seen many people talk about the influence of genes on habits uh, or personality on habits. And I think that there are like some interesting threads to follow there, but it's also, it feels like we're kind of still in the infancy from a scientific standpoint on what the answers are. But the example that I give in the book is that you have Michael Phelps, who is, you know, one of the most famous swimmers of all time six foot four. And you have another Olympian that I mentioned who competed at the same Olympic Games as Phelps in Athens, uh, Hikamel Garouge, who is a very famous runner. And Garouge held at one point the world record, I think in the thousand meter, the 5,000 meter and the mile races. And so he's a fantastic athlete in his own right. And what's interesting is that they're seven inches different in height. Phelps is six, four, El Garouge is five, nine, I believe. And they have the same length inseam on their pants. So the runner is like all legs and no torso. And Phelps has this very long back, which is great for pulling through the water. And so the question I had was, well, what if they switch sports? They're both like literally world-class athletes. And, uh, you know, if Michael Phelps was a runner instead of a swimmer, could he make the Olympics? And the answer is almost certainly no. At peak fitness, Phelps was 194 pounds and El Garouge and the other Olympic runners competed around 130, 135 pounds. So Phelps would have been 60 pounds overweight by the time he got to the starting line. And in distance running, every pound is like a curse. And so the point here is that this is a kind of a larger way of looking at genes in general, which is that your genes are the usefulness or the utility of your genes is often determined by the environment that you are in. So if you're seven feet tall, that's an incredibly useful set of genes on a basketball court, but it's very limiting if you're trying to be a gymnast or do a routine on the balance beam. And this is true not just for physical characteristics, which are very clear and obvious to talk about, but also for psychological ones. I don't know that we have the same depth of knowledge about psychological traits and their links to the genetic code yet. I think we're moving in that direction. But it is interesting to think about, can you set up an environment for yourself or put yourself in situations where you're like a seven footer on a basketball court, where you're in an environment that favors you and make it easier for yourself to build better habits in that way? And you probably know the personality psychology literature better than I do. But I am interested in like how certain personality traits, like the big five, yeah, um, how saw, they may map about that. onto the genetic code yeah. and then like what that might tell us about how to strategize for your habits. You know, like if you're low in conscientiousness and you're not likely to be someone who's orderly and organized and maybe like not the type of person who would remember to do something, maybe your strategy could benefit from a more optimized environment, like a physical environment that has more cues in it to prompt you and remind you to perform a habit rather than just leaving it up to being orderly. I don't know. I'm not sure like how that would shape things, but I think that there's probably like a thread to pull on there where personality can be informative for strategy. 
And that's the ultimate punchline of that chapter is that genes do not eliminate the need for hard work. They show you what to work hard on. They do not eliminate the need for strategy. You don't just say, oh, there's biological determinism. No need to worry about this. Like it's all fixed anyway. They tell you based on your characteristics, where should your strategy be focused? I like that. I think there's an interesting catch-22 with the personality one in the sense that personality might influence what strategies you're motivated to pursue in the first place. Like one Mm. facet of conscientiousness is achievement drive. Some people would call it grit. Some people call it industriousness. And industriousness is a separate facet than orderliness. So you might actually score really low in achievement-oriented drive and low in orderliness and the low orderliness just won't bother you. Like if Hmm. you're very low orderliness and you're high, these things come apart as well. Like you're very high achievement. Like, so it seems like the discrepancy between like who you want to be and who you are is really the important factor here versus, Hmm. you know, because some people, it just won't bother them at all. They're not setting habits that make them more orderly. Like some people are actually totally fine with not always having publicly recognized successes or even you know, reaching long-term goals, they're just happy to like just have good friends and family, you know? So it's just something to think about. Well, I think what's interesting there too is, and this is true for any type of advice, which is advice is pretty useless if you don't have a willingness to self-experiment, you know, like there are a lot of great ideas out there, but if people expect those ideas to map perfectly onto their own life, then things kind of fall apart a little bit. You need to be willing to like massage the ideas or toy with them enough to figure out how do I fit this into my own circumstances. And uh, so in that sense, a deeper understanding of your personality or of your genetic traits, your inclinations and predispositions might allow you to more accurately determine what advice is useful for you. You know, someone who doesn't need to worry about things being orderly, it's like, well, you know, maybe that area of this advice is just not relevant to me and I can move on to the next section because something else is going to be more useful for my personality and situation. So I think that uh, understanding ourselves more deeply and there are all kinds of interesting things that I think are going to come in the coming decades about DNA and genetics and how that links to our psychology and mindset. Understanding yeah. those things better will probably allow us to have better strategies for building habits as well. Yeah, I love that linkage that you're making there. And it's good to start talking about that in the public conversation. I want to circle back because like almost every sentence you make leaves me in like 10 directions to follow up on. So it's like <laughs> you're a particularly uh, difficult guest in a good way. But you said a bunch of things that were very rich earlier. And I want to circle back to this idea okay. of opposing things that seem to be at odds with each other. Like you're either this person or that person. And it's like, no, I'm a person that has both, that encounters both sort of things. I think about this a lot. Let's zoom in on that point you made. Because Abraham Maslow, one of my favorite psychologists, refers to one of the key elements of self-actualization as dichotomy transcendence. So I linked that to what you were saying. Like he Mm. talks about how like really highly developed individuals who are very wise have this ability to not see things that seem paradoxical as paradoxical, like seeing them as only like apparent paradoxes, like, you know, a lot of dichotomies we have in society, like male, female, or work and play, or all these other things. So he actually viewed that as a very high level of actualization in life, if you can do that. I like that phrase, dichotomy transcendence. You know, it's like you're stepping outside of this black and white conversation and seeing the partial truths that are available in in all the options. Yeah. So I'm really excited you made that point. 
That was excellent. You actually don't, you don't talk about that too much in your book, though. Is this a new a new theory? Maybe your next book or something? Well, I came to realize some of it as I was writing the book. You know, so I, yeah. I just mentioned this, like the difference between. Um, Okay, so, you know, there's this classic debate in uh, a lot of psychology research about like social psychologists saying the environment shapes your behavior and personality psychologists saying your personality shapes your behavior and and so on. And of course, there are elements of both. But what's interesting to me is like how far either option can take you, you know, like how far altering the physical environment, like what you see when you walk into your room. So like, let's say, you know, just take a classic example, like watching television as a habit. Well, if you walk into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? They all face the TV. So it's like, what is that room designed to get you to do? And we don't think about it that way, right? But there are a variety of things you could do there. You could like take a chair and turn it away from the TV. You could put the television inside a wall unit. So it's behind like a set of doors or a cabinet so that you're less likely to see it. You could take the remote and put it in a drawer. You could also increase the friction associated with the task. So you could like take batteries out of the remote control and then that adds like an extra five or 10 seconds. And you're like, well, do I really want to watch TV or is this just something mindless that I'm going to do? You could chuck or, it out the window. Yeah, right. <laughs> you could take the, uh, you could take the TV and unplug it yeah. and then only plug it back in if you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So you aren't just allowed to like mindlessly turn on Netflix and find something. If you really want to be extreme, you could take the TV off the wall and put it in the closet and only set it up when you wanted to watch something bad enough to set it up again. But the point here is that many of our habits are a response to what is obvious or frictionless in our environment. I mean, there's no better example than cell phones. You know, our smartphones are on us all the time. And I find the last year or so, I've started to keep my phone in another room until lunch each day. I keep it out of my office. So it just gives me like three or four hours where I can, you know, stay focused and not be distracted. But what's funny about that to me is that if my phone is next to me, it's on the desk and I have it in the room, I'm like everybody else. I'll check it like every three minutes or five minutes or whatever. But if it's, I have a home office. So if it's out of there, it's just up the stairs. It's like 45 seconds away. But even though it's only 45 seconds away, I never go to get it. And so my question is like, do I really want it or not? Like I'm checking it every three minutes if it's next to me, but if it's not in the room, I never want to work 45 seconds to go get it. And I think that there are a lot of technology has created a lot of habits like that, where they're so frictionless and convenient that we find ourselves falling into them whenever we have a down moment or whenever we are bored for a fraction of a second. But we don't want them in some deeper sense. We don't even want them enough to climb up the stairs for 45 seconds and go to a different room. And so when you remove those things and you make them less convenient or less obvious, you'll often find that you slide back into the work that maybe is deeper and more meaningful to you. It's not that I didn't want to write an article today. It's just that because my phone was three feet away from me, I was always checking it. And so once I took it out, it's like kind of removing the mental candy from your environment. And it becomes easy to like eat the healthy stuff when you're not surrounded by that. So I think that environment design can play a a crucial role in shaping habits. Yeah, I really like that. And you triggered in me the idea of inverting your fourth wall. I wanted to actually go through, maybe we should first go through the four walls. How about that? Yeah, and then sure. we'll, we'll like, after that, so we'll get everyone excited. They'll want to listen now. They're dying to know what the inversion is of the fourth wall. Yeah, so yeah. let's go each one. So the first law of behavior change, and th- these are your laws, by the I mean, you propose these laws, right? So, so um, these are yeah, I lay laws. these out in the book. Yeah. I break a, a habit into four stages and then uh, they come up with all, what I call the four laws of behavior change. And there's one for each stage. And so you can think about them as, like a set of tools for making it easier to build good habits. So the, the first law is to make it obvious. So you want to make the cues of your good habits obvious. 
The second law is to make it attractive. The more attractive and a habit appears to us, so the more we perceive it to be valuable, the more likely you are to, to follow through on it and perform it. The second or the, uh, the third law is to make it easy. So you want to make your habits as convenient or frictionless as possible. And then the fourth law is to make it satisfying. If a habit is satisfying, if it feels rewarding or enjoyable, you have a reason to repeat it in the future. And as you just mentioned, you can actually invert each of these four laws if you want to break a bad habit. So make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying is for building a good habit. If you want to break a bad habit, then you make it invisible, make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. And so those four laws of behavior change kind of give us a set of tools for adjusting and improving our habits. Yeah, I mean, that synthesizes an awful lot of research. Yeah, there are four laws, but it, like we're talking hundreds and hundreds of research studies on self-control that back that up from all the self-control I've literature seen definitely talks about like ways of making it hard for you to get to the thing. Well, actually, I mean, there are probably there are thousands of studies yeah. behind those four laws. You know, they're really what I wanted to come up with was a framework that describes how human behavior works. And I'm not really I think it would be a little reckless to claim that those four stages and those four laws describe all of human behavior. But from a broad standpoint, they're pretty close. You know, pretty much every behavior you take in some kind of raw data, there's some type of cue or some preceding event. And then you interpret that data in some way. And that, that's what the craving stage is about. It's about how you interpret the cues that you come across. So that's the second stage. And then there's the response, the behavior you perform. And then there's some kind of outcome or result, which we could call the reward if it's beneficial or the consequence if it's negative. And what I'm really describing there is the process of learning. You know, you see something, you make a prediction about how to respond, you take an action, and then you update your prediction for the next time based on what the outcome was. And there's a lot of finer details of each of these things. I'm going to point some stuff out that I think was pretty cool. So you have three layers of behavioral change, outcome, processes, and identity. Could you yeah. explain those three and then let's zoom in on identity. That's my new favorite phrase, zooming in. Let's zoom in on identity. All right. Yeah. So the way that I think about this is there are kind of multiple levels of behavior change or multiple levels of, uh, of achieving something. And typically, when we go about trying to change our behavior, we start with what I would call an outcome-based approach. So we think about the result that we want. So I want to double my income, or I want to lose 60 pounds in the next six months, or I want to meditate for 20 minutes a day or something like that. And so we think about the outcome that we want. Then we back into a plan for doing that. So it's like, all right, if I want to lose 60 pounds, then my plan is I'm going to follow this diet and I'm going to the gym three days a week. Uh, and that's your process. So you have outcomes and then process. And these are kind of like we're peeling back the layers of an onion. So outcomes on the outside, process, the next layer in. But then I think there's a deeper layer of behavior change, which I would call identity change. And so this is like the set of beliefs or how you identify your uh, self-image um, that's kind of underlying the process, the actions you're taking and the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. Now, typically when people go about changing, I don't know that most people really think about identity. Most of the time it's like, all right, outcome, I want to be skinny and process. If I follow this diet, I'll be skinny. And that's kind of like the end of the thought. And the identity is sort of like implicitly just follows. You think that if I get skinny, then I'll be the person I want to be or something. Yeah. But I think it's actually better to invert this process. So it's not if that I any of them fat and I'm the person bad. I want to be. What's that? Oh, I thought the inversion was if I'm fat, then I'll become the person I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's not that any of the stages are bad. It's just that if you start with the outcome, I think you're focusing in the wrong direction. But if instead we start with the identity, one way to do this is to like kind of reverse engineer the process. So you can ask yourself, well, who is the type of person that could lose weight? Well, maybe it's the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. 
And so then you focus on building the identity of being the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And then that changes or shifts a little bit the process that you're going to follow. Because now it's more about, okay, I need to go to the gym. And it's less about like, I need to do this particular type of workout or this particular type of result or outcome. It's more about like, how do I reinforce that identity? And this is one reason why I think small habits can be so useful is that even if they don't get the outcome that you want, they can still reinforce the identity, which ends up leading to good outcome in the long run. So something like doing five pushups. A lot of people would be like, well, well, you know, what's the difference of doing five pushups? Like, it's not going to get me in shape anyway. But the key is if you're really busy, if your kids are sick or you're traveling and it's like, I've been on the airplane the last six hours and I was exhausted and I got to the hotel and all I could do was five pushups before I collapsed on the bed. But I still am the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And so even though it's a small habit, it can still cast a vote for that identity. And this, I think, is a good way to think about how identities are formed and how they can change is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person that you want to become. So it's kind of like as you perform a habit, you're building up evidence of being a type of person. In a sense, your habits are how you embody a particular identity. You know, it's like every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Every time you go to the gym, you embody the identity of someone who is fit. Every time you sit down and write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. And so these small actions like reading one page or writing one sentence or doing five push-ups, they seem little because they and insignificant because we don't think they can get the result that we want, but they can reinforce the identity of who you want to become. And I think that that actually identity change is true behavior change because once you identify as that kind of person, you're really no longer even looking to achieve some kind of behavior change. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you already think that you are. You know, it's like, it's one thing to say, I want this. It's something very different to say, I am this. And I think that ultimately that's where we're trying to get to is to adopt that identity and then let the results fall naturally. Yeah, I really, really like that. I mean, for the longest time, my identity was like, you know, I'm an introvert and I don't want to be as introverted sometimes, you know, like I would like to break out of my shell sometimes. And so, you know, I bet a lot of listeners listening to this would like to break out of their shell in their own respective things. Maybe we all have something we would like to break sure. out of our shell. And you're saying a really good first step is to, yeah, reconceptualize ourselves as, you know, well, if I were this raging extrovert, I would be the type of person who would not say no to that request. Or right. I'm not, no, not convinced my goal is to be a raging extrovert, but, you know, just go outside my comfort zone socially more. Well, and I think actually that, you know, you don't want to be a raging extrovert is the example. I, I think that's a good way to think about this. You're not looking to like rip your identity in half or become a that's totally right. new person. I don't want to be authentic. I want to be authentic still. Yeah. Right. Right. You're looking to upgrade and expand your identity a little bit. It's kind of, I compare it to like retouching a painting. You know, you're just looking to like make some adjustments. And one way to make the adjustments is to implement some of these small 1% changes. And I think it's also important to note that this is a little different than what, you know, see, oftentimes you'll hear people say things like fake it till you make it. But what I'm talking about is a little bit different here because by sticking to a small habit, by doing five pushups or writing one sentence or whatever, you, again, you're casting those votes for that kind of identity. You have evidence of that being that type of person. Fake it till you make it is asking you to believe something without evidence. And there's a word for beliefs without evidence called delusion. You know, at some point, if you try to keep believing something and you don't have any reason to believe it, then the brain doesn't like that. It, it falls flat. 
But with small habits, you have evidence of being that type of person, proof to root the identity in. And I think that's what's so powerful about them is that they, they seem like these small actions, but they end up being evidence of the type of person that you're becoming. And this is maybe the deeper or real reason that habits matter, that I wrote this whole book on it, that I think it's so important. I mean, yes, habits can get you external results. They can help you lose weight or earn more money or be more productive or reduce stress or whatever. But they also are the path through which we forge our self-image, through which we kind of reinforce this who, what type of person we are and develop self-confidence. And so for that reason, I think they serve an even deeper and more important role in our lives. Love that. Yeah, and I also really like their focus on systems. Could you talk about why we should stop setting goals and focus on systems instead? Because that's not a language that many people talk about. Everyone talks about the importance of goal setting, for instance. Right, right. Sure. So, I mean, first of all, this comes from someone I was very goal oriented for a long time, right? I would set goals for the grades I wanted to get in school, for how much weight I wanted to lift in the gym, for, you know, what I wanted my business to grow and, you know, like all that type of stuff. So I I did this for a long time. And at some point I realized that (laughs) some of these goals I set, I achieved, but many of them I did not. And so clearly like the action of setting a goal was not the thing that was, you know, determining whether or not I was achieving these things. And I came across this language from Scott Adams, the cartoonist behind Dilbert. At first, he's got like the systems versus goals thinking as well. And uh, he's a little more anti-goals than I am. But I think goals are useful. But it's important to be clear about what they are useful for. They're useful for clarity and setting a sense of direction for like knowing where you want to focus your attention. But almost immediately after you've done that, after you've gained some clarity, it's best to put the goal on the shelf and focus on systems. And this is not the typical way that we think about this. I think that this is because part of it is because we live in a very results oriented society. So the news, something is only newsworthy. It's only a story when we're talking about the outcome, the result, the goal. You know, you're never going to see a news story that's like man eats chicken and salad for lunch today. It's only a news story like six months or a year later when it's like man loses 100 pounds. It's only after the outcome that it becomes something that people talk about. And social media has just exacerbated this or magnified it even more because now all day long, we're inundated with people's results, with people's outcomes. And I think because we see the outcome so much, we overvalue the results and think the goal, the ambitious outcome is what matters when really it should be about the process of the system that precedes the outcome. And so this hints at at some of the things I write about in the book about why goals are less useful maybe, or deserve less of our attention than we give them, which is that one problem is achieving a goal only changes your life for the moment, right? Like we think that what we need is this result, but you know, if you get really motivated and you want to have a clean room, you've got all this clutter in your garage or in your bedroom or something. And so you spend a couple hours cleaning your room. You'll have a clean room for now, you know, after you spend a couple hours doing it. But if you don't change the sloppy or messy habits that led to a dirty room in the first place, you turn around three weeks from now or a month from now and you've got a dirty room again. And so we think the results need to change, but the results are not the thing that needs to shift. We need to change the habits behind the results or the system that led to the results. And if you change the system, the outcomes are just a natural product. It's like we spend all our time treating symptoms without treating the actual cause. And so I think that a focus on systems helps resolve some of that. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was an excellent point. I'm going to quote you on something relating to this that I want to discuss. When you finally break through the plateau of latent potential, that's capitalized, plateau of latent potential, 
People will call it an overnight success. The outside world only sees the most dramatic event rather than all that preceded it. But you know that it's the work you did long ago when it seemed that you weren't making any progress that makes the jump possible, today possible. You also talk about the difference between positive and negative compounding. Mm. Have you thought about it in the reverse way? You know, we make judgments about people, you know, as well. They're great because they did that. And, but we also make a lot of, we're very judgmental about each other as well. Mm. So in the book, I talk about how habits yeah. can compound for you or against you. Yeah. And I think that this is one key reason to understand habits. They're kind of like this double-edged sword. You know, they can either cut you down or they can build you up. And if you understand the details about them, then you can design them to your liking rather than to your hindrance and maybe avoid the dangerous half of the blade, of that double-edged sword. And I think that that's crucial for understanding how they work because on any given day, I mean, I like to, so that chapter you just quoted from earlier in there, I say habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. Mm. And the reason I like that phrase is that in the same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them over time. Mm. But that can be true both positively or negatively, right? So on any given day, it's really easy to overlook the difference between a choice that's like slightly better or slightly worse. You know, I mean, what is really the difference between eating a burger and fries for lunch or eating a salad. Um, your body looks basically the same in the mirror that night. The scale hasn't really changed. What's the difference between studying Chinese for an hour tonight or not studying at all? You still haven't learned the language either way. And so it's very easy for us to dismiss those daily choices, those small habits. But it's only two or five or 10 years later that those choices have compounded and we end up in a very different spot and we realize how much value there is in a choice that's 1% better and how much of a cost there is in a choice that's 1% worse. So that that's why I like to use compounding as an example for habits. It's not that it maps perfectly onto that hockey stick curve, but it more accurately describes what it's like to build a habit and what it feels like on a daily basis, which is it doesn't really feel like much. It kind of feels like the beginning of that compounding curve. You're just kind of flat. There's nothing to show for it. And it's only later when you get down toward the hockey stick portion of the curve that you're like, whoa, I'm in a really different place a decade later than it feels like on a daily basis. Yeah, I love that. And I loved the idea of contrasting positive versus negative compounding. That was really cool. Maybe we should step back a moment and actually explain what your four-step model of habits is. Sure. Yeah. So I'll give you an example as I walk through it. So real quickly, the four stages are cue, what I call craving, uh, as the second stage, response and reward. Okay. As an example, say you walk into a room and it's dark. So in this case, the cue is visual. It's a dark room. The craving is how you interpret the cue or the prediction that your brain makes about what to do next. So often we talk about craving as like, you know, I crave a donut or I crave a cigarette or something like that. But I kind of mean this more in a broader sense, like what do you desire to do based on the situation? So cue, the room is dark. Craving, I want to be able to see or I want to reduce the uncertainty of being in a dark room. Response is the third stage where you flip on the light switch. So this is the routine or the action, the behavior that you take. And then reward, the room is lit, I'm able to see now. And those four stages in that example, you know, that happens in what, 30 milliseconds? I mean, it's happening so fast that you don't even think about it. And this is a good way to think about how this process works in the brain. I mean, your brain is going through this endlessly. You're endlessly taking in information, raw data from the environment, the temperature, the pixels in your visual field, what you're hearing, all of this data. Uh, and those are the cues that you're of the external environment that you're absorbing. 
And then you're making predictions about which of those cues are important and how you should respond and what your next action should be based on your current state and past experience and what you've learned. Then you take an action. And then finally, you analyze what the outcome is and then try to update your prediction for the next time. And your brain's going through these cycles endlessly, even right now as you're listening to this. Oh, yeah. And if you do it enough, then pretty soon you can proceed through all four stages without even thinking about it. It's more or less non-conscious, like flipping on a light switch in a dark room. You don't actually think the room is dark. I'd like to be able to see like you're just flipping the switch as soon as you enter the door. And that is kind of the process of forming a habit. You've you've repeated it enough that you can do it more or less without thinking. A second way that I like to break down these four stages, though, and I think it's instructive for understanding what the role of a habit is in daily life is that habits are the solutions that your brain automates to repeated problems that you face throughout life. So the more that you face the same problem, the more your brain starts to develop fluency and speed and accuracy with coming up with a solution for it. So like in the morning, you put your shoes on. And in a sense, having an untied shoe is a problem that your brain has to solve. So cue, you see this your shoe is untied. Craving, I want to have a tied shoe. The response, I tie the the shoelace and then reward the shoe is now secure on my foot. And in that sense, habits are just these solutions and they don't have to be. And this is one of the key things to realize. Your brain is just looking for an effective solution in the moment. It doesn't mean that the original solution that you came up with, the original habit that you built is necessarily the optimal habit. Right. So like if you come home from work and you feel stressed and exhausted. So cue, you walk in the door craving, you're feeling exhausted, you want to feel refreshed or, you know, improve in some way, improve your current state response. Well, there are a variety of ways to deal with that. You know, one person might play video games for an hour and they learn that that's one way to reduce exhaustion and stress. Another person might smoke a cigarette for 10 minutes. A third person might go for a run for 20 minutes. And all of those are solutions to the recurring problem of coming home from a long day at work. But some of them are healthier, more productive than others. And once you realize this, that your habits are just trying to, it's just your brain's best attempt to come up with a a quick and easy solution to the problems you face, then you can start to figure out like, all right, what are better habits that might serve me more in the long run, but also resolve those challenges or problems that I face on a repeated daily basis? If I could make that happen in the real world, like I would definitely be able to make some strides in my habits because this stuff is... As you talk about, a lot of these habits are, and as a lot of research shows, at the subconscious level, they're, they're programmed as if-then statements, right? Like, so we need yeah. like, these implementation intentions in order to, but we can reprogram this stuff, right? I mean, there's hope. Yes, there is hope. And it's, um, habits are, yeah, if-then statement is a good way to think about it because habits are all about associations, right? They're all about like the solution mm-hmm. that you associate with a certain context or with a certain problem. And this is often one reason why it's easier to build a new habit in a new environment because you're not trying to overpower your old associations. So like, let's say, for example, that you wanted to build the habit of reading more. Well, if you are like, all right, I'm going to read more tonight. And so you go into your living room and you sit down on your couch. But the context of being in your living room, being on your couch might already be associated with watching Netflix for an hour each night. And so when you go in there, you're unconsciously, subconsciously fighting against your like behavioral biases in that environment or the stimuli of being there and like wanting to reach for the remote and turn on Netflix. 
So it might be easier actually to build a reading habit. Say there's, um, say there's like a coffee shop near your office where you never go in there. And so it's a new shop. And now this place becomes the context, the area where you finish work, you walk to the coffee shop, you turn your phone off when you get in the door and you pull out a book and you read for 30 minutes. Mm. And so now there's this, is, it becomes the reading coffee shop, right? It's like, it, that's the thing that that context gets tied to. And even if you can't do it with like an entirely new environment, you can often do it with a, a space in your current environment. So maybe you get like a new chair and you put it in the corner of your apartment and that's the reading chair. And the only thing you ever do in that chair is you read. Oh, and nice. the point here is you're trying to associate the context with a new habit and it's better when you can do it in a place that you don't already have associations with you don't already have other things you have to fight through to build a new one i love that so in the little time we have remaining here why don't we talk do some advanced tactics yeah sounds for sure like, sounds like like an operative like advanced like mercenary tactics okay i love it how can we go from being merely good to being truly great i mean obviously that book from good to great is a bestseller you know it's a lot of people are very interested in that, like, how can we go that extra mile? Yeah, the final we, frontier. We already talked about genes and talent, and we already talked about the importance of finding that environment that get the best out of your genes. Uh, can you talk a little about the Goldilocks rule? Yeah. So the Goldilocks rule is essentially a way of thinking about how to stick with a habit in the long run or how to maintain your motivation to perform a habit in the long run. And the idea, and there's some interesting research that has shown this, is that Humans experience peak levels of motivation when they work on a challenge of just manageable difficulty. So not too hard, not too easy, just right. And that's like the Goldilocks rule or this Goldilocks zone of Did challenge. you coin that phrase Goldilocks rule? Yeah, I, I did. I'm kind of like happy about that. I didn't coin the phrase just manageable difficulty. That was from the research. Okay. Um, but Goldilocks rule is like my way of thinking about how to keep yeah, yourself yeah. on that, that edge of challenge. So the idea here is that you want to stay on the perimeter of your abilities. And so, you know, imagine that you're playing a tennis match. If you play against someone who's a professional like Roger Federer or Serena Williams, it's going to get boring pretty quickly because you're going to lose every point. But if you play against someone who is like uh, if you play against a little child who's playing against a five-year-old, that's going to be boring because you're going to win every point. I might but if find you play that against fun. Someone, what's that? That might be a little fun. Oh, yeah. Well, it'd be really cute for a minute, right? Yeah. But if you're trying to play a serious match. Okay, fair if you play against someone who is your equal, you know, who's like, they're pretty good, you're pretty good, they win a few points, you win a few points, you have a chance to win, but only if you really try. That's incredibly motivating. It like forces you to lock in. And perhaps the best example of this in modern life is video games. Video games are designed to keep you right on that razor's edge of your ability. So if you're struggling with a level, they'll give you more power-ups or more coins or maybe drop a few more weapons your way. If you're really advancing and knocking it out of the park, then all of a sudden they'll throw more challenges for you. But the idea is that they want to keep you on that edge. Well, you always feel like you're making progress, but you're also always challenged enough to stay fully engaged. And so that's kind of where you want to stay. Now, this is similar to being in a state of flow, similar to being like fully engaged in the moment. And re some research has shown that states of flow are often achieved when you're about four to five percent beyond your current ability. So you're being stretched just a little. Now, in daily life, how do you know what that is, right? Like what is what is writing four percent beyond your current ability or what is, you know, meditating five percent harder than you usually do? It's kind of hard to quantify that. But I think that as a rule of thumb or as a, a heuristic to keep in mind, 
this idea that I'm looking to stretch, but only just a little bit. Like you really do still need to be winning a lot, making progress. Otherwise, you don't have a reason to continue. Yeah. And would you say Steve Martin was a good example of that? Yeah. So I tell the story in the book of Steve Martin, who um, he had been a comedian for many years before he broke out. I think he said, um, how did he describe it? I think he said 18 years total. And it was like 10 years struggling, four years refining, and then four years in wild success. And early on in his career, his comedy segments were incredibly short. I mean, when he was like a teenager and he was doing this in high school, it would be, you know, three minutes or five minutes on stage. And then gradually each year he would expand it just a little bit. So he'd do like a seven minute routine. And then I think by the time he was 18, he was doing like a 10 minute routine or a 15 minute routine. And each time he would just keep adding a little bit. So he'd keep the pieces that worked, right? He knew that he had some segments that could get laughs, but then it was like, oh, all of a sudden I have to come up with two new minutes of new material that I don't have before. So he's also really being challenged. So it's, it's a great example of what the Goldilocks rule looks like in daily life. There's just enough winning for him to be like, that wasn't a total bomb. I still need to show up next week. But just enough challenge for him to really be pushing hard and be like, man, I got to come up with some good jokes. And end result was he kept getting better year in and year out. And he turned around when he was, you know, in his 20s and 30s and just had this incredible career. And of course, there are a variety of other things aligned with that. We talked already about genes and so on. Right. He had some but talent. to maximize <laughs> your ability in any field you need to be able to stay motivated and stick with it. And the Goldilocks rule is one way to do that. All right. So I'm going to end here with two of my favorite quotes from your book. So one, each habit unlocks the next level of performance. It's an endless cycle. Love that. Kind of makes me think of the of life as a video game, right? Where you get to unlock the next level, mm. you know, just by doing something a little bit better. And this other one I like is the secret to getting results that last is to never stop making improvements. It's remarkable what you can build if you just don't stop. James Clear, congratulations on this tremendous accomplishment of this book, and I wish it all the success. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for the chat. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.